Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Konrika served as the international spokesman for the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF. He recently retired from the military and now runs his own firm, Konrika's Communications. I've long wanted to talk with him about what it was like dealing with the journalistic herd day after day during wars and crises and occasional interludes of peace and quiet. He's in Washington and agreed to stop by FDD headquarters for a chat about that and other issues. Also with us, Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at FDD. His most recent book is Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War, which challenges and corrects some of the inaccurate reporting on that conflict that appeared in the major media. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. So, Lieutenant Colonel Conricus, Jonathan, I got John and John here. This is going to be very confusing for me. To the order. Anyhow, I've heard you lecture numerous times uh, over the years on situations, sit reps, and policy issues and all that, but I've never heard you talk about yourself. And I'm curious, I also think it's useful for people to know a little bit about who you are before they know what you think. And you get to say what you think because you're no longer simply representing institutional views. So tell us, you, you tell us your story. I do, you were born in Sweden, right? I was, well, first of all, Shalom. Shalom. Thank you for having me. It's uh, absolutely a pleasure. And uh, any engagement I have with the FDD is always a positive thing. Uh, I am a believer in what this organization does. Uh, and I think it's a super important organization in the landscape of U.S. politics and international politics. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, and I say that uh, honestly believing it. Uh, again, not being a spokesperson anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, sometimes true. But in this case, it is also uh, what I believe in. And um, in Hebrew, you know, we have a saying that um, in Hebrew it goes, Hadam hu tavnit nof muladato, which is that the per- a man or a person, he is molded by... Uh, the place of his upbringing. And uh, that's very true. Uh, I mean, you are where you grow up, and it takes a village to grow, uh, to, to raise someone. I was born in Jerusalem to um, a, a couple, an Israeli mother and a Swedish father. And then uh, the family moved when I was just a few months old, moved to Sweden. And I grew up uh, most of my formative years were in southern Sweden in a city called Malmo. Oh, Malmo, yes. We're yes. going to have to ask you more about that in a minute. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> in Malmo. Uh, grew up there. Uh, lovely childhood. Um, during my years as a kid, they actually built that bridge. It took uh, the Swedes and the Danes about 110 years of deliberations and negotiations, <laughs> which I draw uh, optimism from. I say, I mean, if it took two countries at peace with each, with each other 110 years to build a bridge, then we shouldn't be too harsh on Israel and the Palestinians for uh, not uh, getting things done. At the age of 13, I, uh, with the family, moved to Israel. We made Aliyah. And uh, my first years in Israel were in a lovely place in uh, central northern Israel called Zichon Yaakov, uh, along the coast. I know where that is. Yeah, Yeah, it's a place uh, famous for making uh, good wine. Uh, One of the first four uh, Jewish settlements at then they were back then they were called colonies in the 1880s uh, that were founded by early Jewish uh, settlers who came back to Israel as part of the early beginnings of the Zionist movement and um, became a larger community. We lived there for uh, a few years up until my military service. Why did your father and mother decide to move to to Israel? Why leave Sweden? I think that they were in search of adventure. Uh, the year was 1992. The uh, winds of peace and uh, great developments, uh, there were sounds of really and positive vibes in Israel, Israel and the Palestinians. This was after the Madrid uh, meeting and uh, building up towards uh, the Oslo Accords. So there was a lot of positive energy going on. And I think that my parents probably wanted to be part of that. I think my mother also missed home, Israel. And uh, the general uh, adventurous spirit of uh, of my parents was what guided us. And uh, this is very nosy of me, but you know I'm a recovering journalist and I yes. have a still an unexpired license to be nosy. So your father, was he Jewish as well? 
No, he is not. He is not, and until this day, he is. Uh, I don't know how he, he would uh, define his religion. I think he's a, a non-practicing, not religious person. There are many such Israelis and many, yeah. and many Jews like that. But he is a, he has Israeli citizenship at yes, this point. Yes, yes, Israeli so citizen. Yeah, became so in um, the late seventies when uh-huh. he uh, first came uh, to Israel and married uh, uh, married my mother. Yeah. So, question. How many languages do you speak? I mean, I'm assuming Swedish, English, pretty good. Um, Hebrew, yeah. Uh, you speak others as well. Yeah, I mean Scandinavians, and if you've met, then you know that they can uh, communicate with each other. Uh, Danes, Norwegians, and Swedes, um, Icelanders a bit less, and the Finns totally no. Totally no. Totally different language. Different uh, animal altogether. Ubrick, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suomi. Mm-hmm. That's their word for Finland. So uh, I understand and can make myself decently understood in Danish and Norwegian, and uh, studied German because it is similar. I mean, it's the same roots as Swedish. And uh, when I served at the UN in uh, New York, for the first time, I really studied Arabic and uh, was happy to. Achieve a decent level at what you call official standard Arabic or modern standard Arabic, Fusra. So I can uh, read, write, and uh, probably cobble together a few sentences in Arabic, which, when I look back at my service at the UN, is one of the biggest uh, takeaways and biggest uh, things that I'm very grateful for getting back. Uh, and because it's such a, a, a key to culture and understanding uh, other people through their language. And I'm I'm ashamed that it took me, you know, 35 years until I did it, but I finally do now. I want to come back to your UN experience, but but first, so you, so there you are, you're like 13 years old, you come to Israel, you don't speak Hebrew until you get there, right? You, so Correct. you're learning Hebrew at the age yeah. of 13. Do you have an accent in Hebrew? No. You got you, you able to, because it's hard when you're a teenager already, right? And learn is. a new language usually when it has an accent. And then you did your military service at 18. Like every other like Israeli. Every, like a, yeah. hopefully every, yeah, most yeah. And you kind of liked the military and decided, okay, I'm going to stay on and I'm going to rise through the ranks. That would, that was your, and you were in the infantry, right, at that point. Yeah, I mean, unlike in the U.S. and in almost all other militaries where you start your military service either commissioned as an officer or as a soldier in Israel, the system is different. And yep. we all start, even the current chief of staff, the three-star general, we all start as privates, and uh, we work our way up. The Marines call this um, Mustangs. They have a system where it's similar, where you start as an enlisted, and then you can become you become an NCO. And then if you're, you're US really, Marines, sir. U.S. Marines, yeah, they have a yeah. small percentage of their officers also were previously NCOs. But in Israel, that is the system. We are all first privates, corporals, and then if we are good— Corporals, we can uh, try uh, to be uh, uh, go to uh, officers training, and after about a year and a half, two years of service, be commissioned as officers. Here's a question for you then: With what we now know, just in the brief little snippets that you've given us, you move in the early '90s to Israel. You must have been 18, somewhere around 1998, 1999. Correct, 97. Yeah. So, okay. Yep. So then you enlist. And three years later, the Intifada breaks out. Yeah. Where were you? Even before the Intifada, my first time under fire and in combat was in Lebanon. And uh, I spent uh, really uh, my first, I'd say, about a year, a little bit shy of a year, in southern Lebanon when the IDF was still um, the what we call the security zone or the buffer zone in southern Lebanon. Um, my... Uh, at least four months were in the Bufour Castle, mm. oh. uh, the old Crusaders' fortress. There's a movie about An that, movie, right? Yeah. It's a very good Israeli movie. About, I mean, very. Yeah, well, yeah it, I, I I, I, I'm it. sad that it, I also recommend it if you anybody wants to understand how it felt to be a soldier, an IDF soldier in that time, in place in southern Lebanon. I think it gives a uh. a, a, a a good rendering of that experience. Um, another book I could recommend would be Pumpkin Flowers. Sure. Oh, Matthew Friedman. Matt, Matt Friedman. We know him. Excellent. Like, love, love guy. Yeah. Brilliant guy. Brilliant guy. Brilliant author. And I think that book is the best depiction for not for a non-Israeli to understand the experience of being an Israeli combat soldier in southern Lebanon in the years before 
the Israeli withdrawal. Uh, a very unique, I'd say, experience. And uh, that was my first time under fire, fighting Hezbollah uh, militants. I don't call them terrorists because they were attacking military targets. So in my book and in most books, that, that is a militant or a, a guerrilla fighter. Uh, IEDs, uh, mortar attacks, uh, anti-tank missiles, uh, attacks on our specific uh, position as well. So we saw a lot of action. We were doing uh, less, taking less initiatives. And this is one of the uh, criticisms that I has had as a young soldier towards the higher levels of command was I was asking myself, again, this connects to my upbringing, the, where I was born, uh, the idea for uh, for you know Jews around the world was you know Israel and especially the IDF is this daring, brave, initiative taking, creative military that if it needs to cross continents to save hostages, it does so. No matter how difficult or or impossible it uh, may be, that's what Israel does. And if Arab armies attack it, it will defend its homeland and beat whatever enemies charge, no matter the odds or the cost. That was, you know, the general ethos that I grew up with as a um, as a child. And then to come to Israel and to be a combat soldier myself in infantry and uh, see the IDF uh, deploy a totally different strategy, one which was much more defensive, uh, much more responding to events rather than taking initiative was a, an interesting experience. Uh, and it, uh, of course, forced me to uh, mature and think otherwise about military operations. But my personal experience as a soldier in southern Lebanon was uh, very shaping. Uh, first time uh, that I fired at the enemy, first time that I was fired upon, casualties on both sides. Luckily, I was unharmed. But, you know, the realities of uh, the Middle East and the realities of uh, defending your border uh, against very hostile and highly motivated elements, that was the first time that that met me. And then Israel withdrew from southern Lebanon. Uh, I was in uh, officer's uh, school at the time. And when officer's training ended and I was commissioned, the Second Intifada, as the Palestinians call it, started, and my brigade, Givati, was really tethered to the Gaza uh, area, the Gaza Strip. So between 2000 and 2005, that is where I uh, spent most of my days and nights. All right, before you go on from there, there's two things I want to get in here. One is, I just want to point out, and you may want to comment on this, so Israel withdraws from Lebanon, and you think, oh, you might think, okay, now there should be peace between Israel and Lebanon because they've withdrawn. It's no longer a problem. And, of course, it is just the opposite. Now you have like 150,000 rockets under Hezbollah's control in southern Lebanon pointing at Israel. In fact, every I would say, I think I'm right, every square inch that Israel has ever withdrawn from has not brought it closer to peace. Every square inch has become a platform for terrorism uh, and attacks against Israel. And if you think Israelis – people – think Israelis don't understand that when they tell them, why don't you just why don't you just leave yeah. uh, Somalia and Judea? Why don't you just leave the West Bank? Because wouldn't that make things better? I mean, that's the complaint they have here. You've been there since six. That's the only complaint. That's not the way it appears. If you know what happened there, John, you wanted to. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, when uh, when you look back at that time period, by the way, I was in graduate school in uh, Jerusalem during that time mm -hmm. period where you're serving in right when the Intifada broke out. But there was a direct line that you could draw between the decision by the IDF to leave Lebanon and the decision by the Palestinians not to enter into a peace agreement and to instead wage uh, this asymmetric war. Yeah. Because they got the Israelis on the run. You see, if we just push them, they'll continue to leave. Eventually, they'll leave the Middle Correct. East entirely. They'll Correct. all go to Brooklyn or Los Angeles or something. I'm sure it'll be work out just fine, right? That's what they think. Or that's the way. Yeah, there's this thing with unilateral withdrawals without yes. the strategic uh, aim. And a security agreement in and place. And a security agreement verifiable. that uh, provides for the day after. And uh, yeah, my personal history as a junior uh, soldier and junior officer is really two Israeli withdrawals, one yeah. in southern Lebanon and then uh, in Gaza. In Gaza, I was a, a company commander and then battalion operations officer in infantry. 
Um, the brigade that I served in really operated across all of the Gaza Strip, not an Israeli community that I didn't spend many nights in, and all, and I got to do uh, offensive operations in all of the Palestinian cities, Gaza City, Hanun, Rafah. So the Gaza Strip is um, was quite familiar, and the I'm I'm all for ending conflicts uh, by political agreements. But I don't think that ending, trying to end conflict unilaterally without having the other side side on, sign on to what the situation will be the day after, that's probably not a wise thing. And going back to what you said about criticism leveled at Israel, that I think after Gaza has changed in Israel, whereby the perspective now on Judea and Samaria, or what many people in the world call the West Bank, uh, I think that there's less people who honestly who, who say and believe that if Israel will just disappear from Judea and Samaria, things will be all right and the conflict with the Palestinians will end. I think that Israeli collective understanding has matured beyond that. Yes, it's the international community's collective understanding that has not matured beyond that. Well, we, we had a saying in grad school, and our producer, Danielle, may want to delete this, but withdrawal doesn't work, not on the battlefield, not in the bedroom. Um, <laughs> we, we, we don't. We, Danielle we will definitely keep that in. Okay. I know. Okay, good. Trust good, good. me. This is, uh, you know, this, is, this has been a lesson that I think Israelis have learned time and again. Um, and yeah, I think actually to a large extent, it wasn't just the failure of the peace process that has emboldened the Israeli right. And I do want to talk to you about mm -hmm. how you view the current government, but the Israeli right has learned some tough lessons. One being that vacating land in an attempt to appease their adversaries or in fact enemies does not achieve anything. Uh, and then in fact, even trying to negotiate that in some kind of formal structure in, in the eyes of the Israeli right, that's failed too, right? So it's not just that you leave on your own and you hope it gets better, but even if you leave with something that you've signed, it may not go well, right? Even today, you look at, uh, you know, some of the other agreements that Israel has where there's tough things going on with Egypt or with Jordan. And, you know, there's not- Or the Oslo Accords. Or the Oslo Accords, right? But you don't see any guarantee in no. having done this. And I think, unfortunately, this is the lesson that, you know, probably Bibi has learned. Uh, it's probably what Itamar Ben-Gvir has learned. It may be what some of the others uh, in this current Israeli coalition that they are holding on to this. I wish I could say they were wrong, but I'm not sure they are. I think it's largely why the, correct me if I'm wrong, the Israeli left the labor. Labor was once the most important party in, in, in Israel. It's no longer. It's a tiny party, and partly because I think people have become disenchanted with a, a dovish approach, with the idea that if you just sign a paper, shake hands, it's all going to be fine. It's just, it's not going to be. Yeah, I, I think that is. those are very valid points. I would put one more part in the equation, which I think is really important. The assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, I think, is a singular event that changed the political landscape of Israel and, to a greater extent, the Middle East. And had it not happened, I think that we would be in a, a substantially different situation. I think all what you say, I agree. Uh, the disenchantment or disillusion of many parts of Israeli society, the perhaps naive hope for, to bring about peace by signing a paper without building it from the bottom up. But I think that we cannot overlook the importance of uh, Yitzhak Rabin and the fact that he was assassinated in the middle of a process that he had a vision for, not only how it starts, but how it ends, including a very specific view on security, which, by the way, was what we would today call very hawkish. His view on Judea and Samaria is uh, not at all different from what probably this government is uh, promoting, because he said there is no way from a security perspective, that I, Israel, will relinquish control over the Jordan Valley or Judea and Samaria. Yes, we want to find a solution with the Palestinians. Yes, we aspire peace, but there are security considerations that are hard, non-negotiable borders, and this is, this is where we will work through. And this has been something, I've been reading it in the Israeli press. It's, it's come out not so much in English, more in Hebrew, um, that some of the figures from the Israeli right, the ascending Israeli right, those that have come into power now, um, are charging that it was the Shin Bet that somehow 
urged this assassination, that they had plants. There, there seems to be some kind of crazy conspiracy theory that has been embraced by the Israeli right. What, what's the story? It is, I, I understand it to be exactly as you said, a crazy conspiracy theater, a th- a theory. Uh, I remember reading a book, I think it was a year and a half after the assassination of Rabin, um, that basically tried to promote the story that it was the Shabak. I think it's nonsense. And I think it is uh, just uh, fringe propaganda, uh, which has no foundation. And uh, unfortunately, sadly, I think that the assassination of Rabin was the most effective political assassination in uh, modern history. Changed the course of Israel. Well, why did it? Since it would make, since the views you just described will make peace, but we have security concerns. They're hard. We can't compromise on them. Why would that change? I mean, it's yes, he, he's a talented politician, statesman, but why would that change? I think it again relates to how Israeli electorate shifted, and what, if anything, could be reached through agreements with the Palestinians. It set, I think it set in effect a, a, a series of, of, of events that uh, were really changed the trajectory. Uh, and, and I think that the uh, one really significant thing that wasn't a direct result of uh, Rabin's assassination, but Palestinian rejectionism of any um, offer, no matter how generous, that hasn't changed. So I cannot say that that was a result of Rabin's assassination. They have remained uh, very uh, consistent in their refusal to sign a paper and say, we end the dispute, we end the conflict with Israel. Both of you get to argue with me, please. But my reading of history, there have only been two Palestinian leaders, right? There are only two. <laughs> I mean, unless you, there's Yasser Arafat, and this Mahmoud Abbas. Forget Hajamin al-Husseini. Yeah, Hajamin, I would, okay. I would have Hajamin him as well. Hajamin al-Husseini was the leader of Palestinian Arabs and Muslims. He did not consider himself a Palestinian, but he was the essentially, as Grand Mufti of Jerusalem appointed by the British, he was the leader of that population. Of course, he was a Nazi. Mm-hmm. He spent the World War II in, in Germany, Germany and Italy, with yeah. Hitler, yeah. and he was as anti-Semitic. And in fact, he wanted a final solution for the Jews of the Middle East. I just want to make sure everybody understands all that. Yeah. So you can say that, but but if it's a, and you know if there's a Palestinian state, they may put his picture on the currency or the or the coins. I don't I don't know, but right. wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. But my but I my reading of history is that Yasser Arafat at no point thought. Yes, I'm going to shake hands with an Israeli prime minister and end this conflict, and I'm going to be the the new president or prime minister of a small Israeli state, and I'm going to encourage tourism and foreign investment. I don't think – I think a lot of people in this country and Israelis thought, yeah, we can do business with Arafat, and he's tough enough, and we can – but I don't think at any point in his life, or Mahmoud Abbas, I would say, and this is even more controversial, at any point, either of them ever thought, no, yes, we want to make peace with Israel if we can only get a good enough deal. I don't think – do you disagree with that? I think – You do agree. You think they could I have do. made a deal. I do. I, look, I'm not saying that I think that either one of these guys were peace-seeking missiles. Um, <laughs> th- th- there was never a straight trajectory. I think that Arafat – certainly in the early 90s, felt that there was no other game in town and that he had to get right with the United States. And by the way, I think there's a real Mm -hmm. lesson here that when the U.S. wins the Cold War and Mm. looks like it is the 800-pound gorilla, everyone falls in line and they want to make sure that they do the bidding of the United States. And I think Arafat was no different. And conversely, when the U.S. is in retreat, everybody thinks we can push them a little further. Exactly. And so if you want to make more peace in the Middle East, you need a stronger America. And by the way, let's just say Biden administration, please take note. Uh, And that may have been, by the way, one of the secrets of Trump. I mean, he looked like he was so unpredictable and so tough. Nobody wanted to cross him. And so he said, big peace. And they said, yes, sir. Uh, But I do think that Arafat um, at one point um, was more serious about it. Other points, he was less serious. And I think by the end, he looks at the United States in 2000. We don't look like the superpower that we once were. Clinton did not have the kind of leverage that uh, that maybe Bush did when this whole thing started. And um, he said, you know what? I'm out. 
and um, and he felt that he could say no to the United States. Uh, but I think that that was a process. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a state of mind. And Arafat, by the way, was always hard to nail down. You never knew where he was, where he belonged on the spectrum of things. Uh, he was a bit you know bipolar in some ways. He may have actually been um, you know medically uh, diagnosable in that way. I mean, you never knew where he was going to come out with his speeches, and they were rambling and they were crazy. Going to the um, UN with a gun on his yeah, hip. That's right. I mean, which which Arafat was going to show up at any given event, you never knew. With Abbas, I'd say, I mean, this is a guy that essentially launched the Oslo process. This was maybe one of the guys that was a true believer early on in engagement with the Israelis. But he too, right, this is the same guy that's Holocaust denying and he's got anti-Semitism in his DNA. Uh, But neither leader, um, neither leader were naturally inclined and I think, by the way, I'd be hard-pressed to find a Palestinian leader today, um, even Salam Fayyad, right? I mean, probably the most moderate who's leader. living in the U.S., we should tell people. Yeah. Who's living in the U.S. now, but even the most moderate leader, they're not going to sit there and say, I love the idea of peace, but they could get pushed into it, which I think is the lesson here. Okay, um, unless you disagree or have another perspective, I'll move on. But I, I want to digress, actually, for a second. You mentioned you, you were brought up in, in Malmo, and it's just worth asking you. So- Mamo had a fair-sized Jewish community yeah. back then, not huge, but and over the years since, the Swedes have welcomed a fair-sized Muslim community from the Middle East into Mamo. Yeah, from my understanding is that it's gotten much harder. And by the way, they, they're, they've settled this Muslim community that settled in Mamo. They're not called settlers, but uh, no. they're called immigrants or yeah. or, or Swedes or, or Swedes. Once they take the Swedish yeah. citizenship. But they've brought with them Middle Eastern attitudes towards Jews that have made it harder for the, the Jewish community to flourish and survive and live in peace in Malmo and in Sweden. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong. And I'll tell you the like a personal perspective of it. Uh, I was the first in my class to leave Malmo. And uh, I grew up in a nice neighborhood in Malmo and studied in a public Swedish school with, there's no Jewish day schools in Malmo. There's one Hillel in Stockholm, but the Jewish community in Malmo wasn't big enough. So there's no school. But uh, in my class, we I had four classmates that were Jewish. And in my in the school, there were at least around 20 Jews. So we had, you know, our during Pesach, we had we were eating uh, our matzahs separately, and uh, there were kosher meals in the school uh, that were provided to those who wanted, and uh, a lot of Jewish kids. So I was the first to leave. We did Aliyah, and about ten years later, I find all of the uh, young men uh, who were my classmates in Malmo uh, from my year, and those younger and older uh, in Tel Aviv or Ramat Sharon, and if they really went far, it was Herzliya, um, living there, looking to settle and build a new life in Israel with an Israeli spouse. And I think that's very telling very of telling. the specific situation of Malmo. It's not all about uh, the uh, Muslims, Muslims coming um, as immigrants, different waves. It started in the you know, 70s with uh, Muslims from, uh, or 90s, uh, from uh, former Yugoslavia, and then uh, it's been, uh, I mean, Sweden is perhaps the most liberal country or welcoming country when it comes to bringing in uh, refugees and um, and um, people from all around the world. But what I find very uh, sad is that the Jewish community is uh, small, relatively unorganized with without any political power mm. and influence and timid or intimidated by a growing hostile uh, environment that is becoming more and more extreme in its views, in its anti-Israeli and anti-Semitic views, many times detached from reality and just fueled by BDS uh, nonsense and uh, Palestinian propaganda and Iranian propaganda and Syrian propaganda. You just see it uh, parades on yearly parades, main streets in Malmo of uh, just waves, thousands of pro-Palestinians and anti-Israeli supporters who would be very violent, thuggish, and uh, try to intimidate uh, Jewish people and the Jewish community there under constant uh, security threat with a lot of uh, uh, 
safety measures around the synagogue, and it's very, very uh, limited Jewish life there. So I understood that uh, after, I mean, after coming to Israel, I was very happy uh, that we are in Israel. And I look back at the Jewish community in Malmo, and I think it has very limited, if any, horizon. And then Norway is also bad on Israel. Yeah, even, well, Norway, Norway is perhaps the most difficult country of the Israeli government in the EU or in the world. Um, there's a... Uh, there are a few countries that are more... Uh, I like to say it's critical of Israel, but go ahead, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> uh, th- 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 I think uh, Norway and Sweden, Sweden with the previous governments, not necessarily the current one, uh, have been extremely uh, critical of anything related to Israel. Uh, there's a very small Jewish community in Norway, if at all. There's still a sizable community in Stockholm, in Sweden, but generally speaking, the story that we're and that we can say is that it is a uh, has always been very small and it is growing smaller and it is under tremendous pressure you know norway is um on our radar here at fdd uh because it really is one of the originators of bds as we know it today mm-hmm. uh it's the norwegian financially definitely yeah, yeah. The, the norwegian uh sovereign wealth fund has been a leader among sovereign wealth funds in purging Israeli investments. Yep. Uh, by the way, they also purge American uh, companies, including yes. uh, companies that produce armaments that uh, they rely upon for their own security. As NATO which, members. That's yeah. right. So, uh, you know, uh, we're not asking for consistency out of them. Apparently, we're not asking for much. Uh, but th- that's been interesting to uh, to see. And, and, and obviously, when we think about that sovereign wealth fund, um, you know, their decisions were among the early ones taken in a trend that we now uh, identify as ESG, this environmental social governance vetting system. Uh, and that's, of course, that's come into the headlines recently because of Morningstar work that our colleague Rich Goldberg has done uh, looking at the way that Israel is consistently singled out for what they call controversial ratings for things happening in the West Bank or elsewhere. So uh, Norway, we can thank for, um, you know, engineering this wonderful uh, new approach to investment. Yeah, at the government level and also at uh, social uh, civil society, um, UN voting, absolutely appalling against Israel uh, in uh, in Norway. So it goes hand in hand with what you uh, just uh, just described, unfortunately. All right. So there you were. You were uh, uh, an infantry officer. You were being shot at. You were in combat. And at a certain point, you decided, you know what? I want to do something more dangerous. I think <laughs> I'm going to deal with the international press. Right. Yeah, there were a few. Uh, <laughs> how, did, how did that come about? There were a few other incarnations on the way. <laughs> oh, okay, but well. uh, yeah, I had the um, – uh, on the way, I first um, – dealt with uh, what we in the military call foreign relations. So I uh, had a very interesting assignment to actually try to read, analyze the military doctrine of other Western militaries, Mm. try to identify lessons learned from combat, Mm. and see if they are applicable for the IDF. Mm -hmm. So I read a lot of German doctrine, U.S., Army and Marines, a bit of French that I could get my hands on and uh, looked at different perspectives, both, you know, deep basic doctrine uh, and then also lessons learned from combat in urban terrain uh, and uh, counterinsurgency, different types of uh, warfare. Very interesting, very enlightening, and uh, really opened me up, just not, you know, looking at things from an Israeli perspective, but looking at how other militaries face similar threat with one key difference, which still stands today, that all of the other militaries that I mentioned uh, were fighting far away from their homes, uh, expeditionary missions. So the adva- the disadvantage of expeditionary missions is you have to be good at logistics, right? Because you're supplying far away from your own bases, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Southern the Sahel, <laughs> Southern <laughs> Ukraine, wherever it is, you're far away from your homeland. But I think any Israeli would prefer that over fighting and actually defending your own uh, backyard and your own family uh, with the enemies just, you know, miles, kilometers away from 
where your own civilians and in some cases your own families living. But ironically, that that is, I think, in some ways, Israel's secret sauce. When you can't lose a war, you don't. Yeah, you 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 must not. You cannot. And uh, the thing with, I mean, old school, what we call classic military confrontations, right? Armored and all-out uh, war between maneuvering uh, nation states. That's one type of war, which where it was clear. Now there's war. Now we fight. We cannot lose, no matter if it's six armies that are invading and charging on Israel. IDF defends and 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 wins eventually. And uh, I'm sure that's part of the definitely part of the motivation. Uh, today, that's it. I mean, it's different, right? We're in a different type of warfare: counterinsurgency, counterterror. This ongoing uh, fight against Palestinian terrorist activities and against Palestinian guerrillas, it is uh, a different type of warfare. But I mean, but you also have to be prepared for other kinds of warfare because you've got the tactical danger from the from Hamas and from Islamic Jihad and on the northern West Bank and Hamas and Gaza. But you have Hezbollah, which is a different kettle of it is, fish it is. And, and, and different kind of, and a more sophisticated military. And then the existential threat of Iran, which is on a different level. It's not going to be it's not the Iranian infantry that's going to mar- march in, but it may be no. their rockets that are going to lob over and, and in. So I think that's spot on. Israel is, relevant to its size, the only military that needs to be capable of dealing with a full spectrum of military operations from on the lower end, basically policing, and then on the upper end, intercontinental ballistic missiles and the threat of nuclear warfare, and everything in between, including fighting in all of the dimensions, air, sea, underground, cyber, information, uh, all of those uh, dimensions where Israel is currently fighting and uh, on different fronts with different or different theaters of operations, to use an American term, uh, in different types of terrain, lots of urban terrain, mountainous terrain, desert, uh, but most of it today is, is, is urban, Gaza, Lebanon, uh, and to most extent, uh, Judea and Samaria. And let's not forget Syria, because there are military operations that Israel's Indeed. carrying out. You can say this now. You don't have to say it. I've seen yep. reports of this. No, no, <laughs> I can say it. Carrying yeah. out operations in Syria to prevent the Islamic Republic of Iran from setting up forward operating bases against Israel in Syria with uh, with sophisticated weapons. Yeah, I think that's something that um, uh, when history judges the so-called Israeli campaign between wars— it uh, might say, and uh, judging from how it is today, and of course saying something ahead of that that it's happened, but the chances are that this, this might be defined as a very successful military campaign that was able to do with kinetic and non-kinetic uh, weapons to undermine a strategic effort that Iran uh, has formulated and has vested tremendous efforts in, and that is to bridge the gap between where Iran is and where Iran wants to be forward deployed with its uh, offensive capabilities, talking about around 600 miles, that's the the difference, and they wanted to use Syria as the launch pad for that, Uh, had a complete strategy, a nation-supported strategy of how to use the uh, destabilized Syria after the war and uh, forward uh, deploy their forces there in order to be able to have another way of threatening Israel. That was identified early on by the IDF and the Israeli defense establishment. And contrary to other threats that Israel faces, this threat was met with a strategy and with action uh, across different spectrums of military operations. And so far, I think it is quite uh, remarkable how the Israeli Air Force mostly, which is really the leader in this campaign, has been able to continuously target and scale back, at the end of the day, scale back significantly Iranian entrenchment. But, and it, but it's ongoing. I mean, the it Iranians is ongoing. have not given, given up on this no, effort. No, no. Just yeah. like they haven't given up on yeah. being nuclear. Yeah. yeah. A, yeah. Cu- oh, no, a couple no. of things I'll just know. One is, uh, and I don't know if, if this has been announced anywhere yet, but our, my, our colleague David Desnick and I were actually yeah. Uh, we started writing a book yeah. on on this war between wars, and it, it's a in my view, it's it is probably the most consequential war we've seen since 
maybe 1967, mm -hmm. uh, the dominance that Israel has had, uh, the effect that it's having against its enemies, the deterrence that it's establishing. And there's a few things to note here. One is that this is now three Israeli administrations in a row, Bibi, then Bennett, slash Lapid, now BB again. It's a continuous strategy and it's an evolving strategy. Uh, another thing to note is that um, this war between wars is not just Syria, right? It is cyber. It's psychological. It's on the high seas. It's in Iran itself. This is an effort to degrade Iran's capabilities across the board. The focus has been Syria, but it's actually much bigger than that. Depending on who you talk to, Indeed. they'll talk about this as a, as a much broader strategy against an enemy and all of its proxies. And then maybe one other thing to note, which I think has gone overlooked. Can is, I just interject one thing course. here? I mean, you spoke about uh, the how power resonates, and you spoke about the U.S. at the end of the Cold War ending with the U.S. victory. I think that another aspect of Israel's campaign against Iran, Iran's malign regional attempts is also signaling to other countries in the region, Israel Took is the there right fighting. Out of my mouth. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, sorry, but, I'm, I'm, we're, we're having okay. a Vulcan mind meld. Yeah. Um, it, it, it 100% agree with you. I believe that this is uh, this has been among the things that have enticed the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco. Totally. And, and the Saudis. And, and the Again, Saudis they, are the Saudis, to, uh, they're, quite, they're well aware of this. They know what they're, they, they know how to watch this stuff. Correct. And so the, the longer this goes on, uh, the more I think Israel is going to demonstrate that it is uh, the most capable military in the Middle East. No and doubt. One last thing that I'll point out here is that you know, people talk about what Israel is going to do to counter Iran at the end of the day to stop the nuclear program. I have believed for a long time that this campaign between wars is the vehicle through which the attack on the nuclear program ultimately takes place. In other words, most people talk about uh, the an end to Iran's nuclear ambitions as an event. Mm. I don't think it will ever be an event. As in one attack? One strike and mm -hmm. then you're done. Right. It will be part of this campaign. The campaign will escalate. It will take on different contours as long as this continues. And by the way, I think from a legal perspective, in the from the perspective of international law, it creates a construct. No one says that this war is illegal that Israel's engaged in. And it's tit for tat between Iran and Israel. I believe this gives Israel a construct in order to be able to dispatch that Iranian nuclear program if and when the time comes. One comment on that. Yes, this I should say reportedly, Israel is operating in Iran uh, on Iranian soil and uh, has had quite, few, quite, quite a lot of successes. But one significant difference is that I think Iran, unlike Syria and Iraq, implemented lessons that they learned the hard way in protecting their nuclear aspirations and is and is positioned totally differently. And, uh, In other words, they've spread out their nuclear They have spread out. Everything is hardened. Yeah, right, right, right. It is decentralized, and there is no Osirak or Dirazur, right. no one place to attack. And any Israeli uh, kinetic effort to uh, put a stop to an Iranian nuclear program will be uh, totally much more complex and with, uh, with, with will demand much more uh, input from Israel with a higher casualty rate than those previous two successful examples. The unsung hero, I think, of uh, you know the war in Syria, the fact that Israel destroyed Deir Azul, uh, and uh, then it fell into ISIS hands uh, 20 years later. Uh, many people, you know, again, when we judge Israeli actions and the international community's response to them, Israel was under tremendous uh, criticism when it struck the reactor in uh, Deir Azul, uh, warmongering, belligerent, oh, destabilizing, uh, etc. Announced the U.S. didn't want the Israelis to do yeah. it. All right. But then uh, it was done because it needed to be done. And uh, then uh, history unfolded and the um, situation could have been totally different had it not been done by, by Israel. And there's one other component of this that I have to get in here, and that is this, that in addition to Iran in Syria, you have one other foreign, I would say, imperialist power, mm -hmm. and that is Russia. 
And Russia is there largely because of bad U.S. policy, not understanding that we were essentially under the Obama administration turning over Syria to Russia as much as as much as they wanted. So they got a warm water port. They have military there. That means what does that mean? It means that when the Israelis are going to attack the Iranian outposts that are meant to attack Israel inside Syria, there needs to be deconfliction with the Russian forces there. The Russian forces have to turn a blind eye to that, right? So that mean that means that the Israelis have to get along with the Russians. And I bring this up in particular because any and I say this as somebody who is four square for Ukraine. Slava Ukraini, Slava Giroyim. I support Ukraine against Russia. But the idea that you hear too often that the Israelis need to be giving iron domes to the Ukrainians, that the Israelis should be the ones who are playing a central role. This essential role should be played by the U.S. because this is strategic and this is about the world order. And the Europeans, because this is a conflict, the most important conflict on European soil since World War II. So like the Germans have some responsibility here. The French have some responsibility here. The Israelis, the if, they can give, if they can give humanitarian aid, great. If they can give some quiet intelligence aid, absolutely right. All kinds of things they can do quietly. But the idea that why isn't Israel more involved yes. in Ukraine? How dare them? How dare them? After, yeah. And how for an American to say that after the Americans have allowed Russia to be, have the presence they have now in Syria, it strikes me as just hypocritical and outrageous. And you hear it all the time. Am I right? We do. And, and my, my favorite argument is, well, Zelensky's Jewish. So, oh, well, right, therefore, right, right, as if that somehow should justify a complete shift in Israeli foreign policy. And by the way, I, crit- but, I love I, I'm, I'm a fan of Zelensky's, but I've criticized, I and I understand he's got one thing to do and one mission, but he shouldn't be criticizing the Israelis saying you need no, to do it's, more it's for me. Of, no. It's out of line. But but the, the thing that, that I think we hear more often than not from Israelis is, look, uh, the Russians and Iranians are allies, right? The Iranians are yes. providing weapons to the Russians. They're yes. providing drones. They possibly are providing missiles. If the Israelis provide Iron Dome, for example, to the Ukrainians, and it's captured on the battlefield by the Russians, where do you think that's going? And then what do you think the impact of that will be on the Israeli ability to defend itself where it matters the most to them? And when the Iranians give give drones or missiles or whatever weapons to the Russians, and and then they say, you know what we want in in return? It's not going to be rubles they want in return. They're going to say, how about helping us defeat the Israelis? Yeah, that is is what they are uh, focused about. And I'd say... I am happy to say that these types of criticism, I think that there's less of it, probably also related to things that you have written and said and voiced in American media that, uh, come on, let's look at this professionally uh, and let's not demand of Israel something that it shouldn't be demanded and it's really not within Israel's capabilities. I'll tell you something, you know, very straightforward. Israel doesn't have enough Iron Dome batteries to defend itself against... 130,000 rockets in Lebanon and 30,000 rockets in Gaza. And you don't know how many missiles and rockets in Syria under Iranian control. So for Israel to deliver Iron Dome batteries that are sorely needed at home to defend against jihadi terrorists uh, for the sake of um, uh, being nice or, you know, being on the right side, I totally, like you, totally believe that uh, Ukraine is the right side, Russia is the aggressor and wrong, and the world, especially those countries that are closer, Europe and U.S. as the world's leader, should uh, support Ukraine. And I think that in many aspects, that's what, the, that's what the world is doing, supplying weapons. And kudos to Ukrainians for fighting the way they are. Tremendous surprise for, uh, for Ukraine and uh, for the Russians. But at the end of the day, Israel has real world threats that we need our weaponry to defend our civilians. Uh, and uh, shouldn't be asked to to provide that to any other country. All right, so we've taken a long path here, but I wanted, but we come come back to you. So you were studying foreign yeah. militaries, kind of an academic scholarly pursuit, but really fascinating. And eventually, you got to the point where you said, "Okay, I'm going to deal with the foreign press." Yeah. On the way, I was uh, <laughs> yes stopped at the UN as well. Oh yeah, well, it must have been fun. Also, a very friendly. Got to be fun for a, for a Jew, an Israeli Jew, to be working at the UN. That's got to be a great place because the UN, I think, you want to talk about systemic. 
yeah. anti-Semitism. The UN, that's what that's what the UN does best. And it, that's easy because the UN does so little, uh, I think, that really well. And I say this as somebody who's lived in Africa and a lot of places, right. seen the UN is development efforts, and they're very nice for the people working there, not doing much <laughs> for the people in Africa. I'm very critical of the UN. So what was that like, being at the UN as an Israeli and a Jew? So I was very proud to be the first Israeli officer to be seconded to the UN. And I served there for three years, providing military assessments, essentially writing one-pagers about threat to UN peacekeeping forces in different areas in Africa. Since I'm Israeli, I couldn't deal with the Middle East. There's a certain conflict of interest. There are four peacekeeping missions uh, in or around Israel. So I couldn't deal with any of those. And um, I instead focused on Somalia, the Horn of Africa, and the Sahel region. So jihadi extremism, terrorism, whether it was al-Shabaab or um, other jihadis in the, the Sahel, uh, different names, but tactics were similar, and the general idea behind it were I found many uh, correlating features between how terrorists were butchering civilians in Somalia and what Hamas uh, tries to do uh, otherwise. It was definitely a time of uh, dream learning for me, very insightful to be inside the UN, to see how UN resolutions were drafted, to see how mandates for peacekeeping forces were um, bargained and defined by the P5 countries and uh, to see decision-making at the international level and to be, be a, a small cog in a very large machine. I think that, the unfortunately, the UN isn't providing and acting on its charter, essentially failing in most aspects that it, uh, it is uh, supposed to be operating. Peacekeeping is, um, unfortunately not the solution to so many conflicts in the world, so many places of suffering where it doesn't work. But from my perspective, I looked at it, you know, at, uh, at Israel. Uh, to say uh, institutional bias is to put it very mildly. And uh, I was, I always walked around with an Israeli and UN flag on my, the lapel of my, uh, of my suit. Those are rare. <laughs> I'll tell you the story behind it. Not only are they rare, I had them uh, specially commissioned at the UN visitors shop, you know, first level uh, of the, the yeah. entrance of the UN building. I walked in as a fresh uh, assessment officer in the UN. I walked in and I saw these small little uh, places where there's uh, flags, UN flag and country flag. Not a bestseller with the Israeli Yeah, flag. and then I looked for the Israeli one and there wasn't anyone. I said, okay, I understand. Not a popular country in the UN. Fine, but I want one. I'm, a U I'm UN staff and I want to walk around with the UN and Israeli flag. So I got to the, the, the guy who ran the visitor's shop and I asked him, okay, who do I need to write to so that I, as a staff officer, can have a pin with the UN flag and Israeli flag? A few emails later, many emails later, uh, they uh, on sale had uh, UN and Israeli flags, and I wore it. If you have proudly. any extras? Let me know. I'll wear mine. Ironically, <laughs> yes. Real quick question for you, um, Unifil. Yeah, uh, it's an it's an issue that we look at here um, regularly. Uh, arguably, the worst. UN mission as it relates to Israel. Of course, the Human Rights Council is probably the most uh, damaging yeah. uh, of of the UN institutions. But what's your quick and take? And just is? ten seconds, tell people what UNIFIL is in case oh, they don't. Sorry, know. the the UN uh, interim force in Lebanon. Uh, they're supposed to be, you know, out there trying to collect Hezbollah weaponry or preventing it from coming through. Um, they don't. They do are that. onlookers. Uh, they seem to almost be partners. Um, so just curious, as a guy that served in Lebanon and as an, yeah. someone who's had to comment on this, uh, how do you view their performance? And why is it that Israel continues to advocate for its, the renewal of that mandate? Excellent question, especially the last one. <laughs> I was uh, a liaison officer, the uh, head of the Israeli liaison unit to UNIFIL. So for two and a half years, served up there and really got an intimate uh, I think, experience with them. Um, I don't know if it's the worst UN peacekeeping mission in general. There are some that are failing 
much more. It's a tough contest. But I mean, it is. Uh, without, I mean, we, we sound a bit cynical, but, but yeah, uh, it is a tough contest. Uh, but regards to Israel, it is definitely the one that has the biggest strategic uh, importance because unlike many other UN peacekeeping missions, UNIFIL has a mandate that on the paper allows them to actually make a difference on the ground. And this is why the difference between or the uh, the gap between what they're supposed to do and what they're doing is so troubling and so dangerous because they're facilitating this powder keg of Hezbollah weapons. At the end of 2006, when uh, the UN uh, adopted uh, the resolution that uh, renewed UNIFIL and created UNIFIL Mark II, they were given the mandate to make sure that in southern Lebanon only one armed force exists, and that is the Lebanese armed forces. And there should be no, and this is UN parlance, illegal weapons, instead of saying Hezbollah's weapons, so illegal weapons in southern Lebanon. That is totally not implemented, and Hezbollah, and I think we should give credit for a brilliant long-term plan by Hezbollah, Hezbollah has effectively boxed in UNIFIL, is using the international presence as a fig leaf for nothing to see here, nothing reported, so thereby everything is okay, and simply boxing UNIFIL in and not allowing them to monitor or patrol anywhere else but where Hezbollah tells them to. And of course, they cannot go into villages. Of course, they cannot search into houses, not in, because of a lack in their mandate. They have the mandate to do it. They can't even get lost. They if can't you, even get lost right? without being get, shot at. If you get at. lost, you drive into the wrong road and you will get shot. And yeah. one Irish uh, peacekeeper Unfortunately, was killed. price for it. Yeah, right. it was killed in a traffic accident that resulted of the convoy coming under fire. And that's regrettable. I'm sad for his family. I am sadder for Israel because the fact that UNIFIL isn't implementing their mandate allows for the... Uh, the, 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 the mechanics to be in place, the weapons to be in place for a third Lebanon war. The uh, uh, UNIFIL was supposed to avoid that, was supposed to make it impossible for Hezbollah to uh, stockpile the amount of firepower that they had before the second Lebanon war. Not only have they not done that, Hezbollah today has almost 10 times more weapons than what they had before 2006. Another illustration of why these agreements don't mean anything. The, the paper means nothing. I mean, the, the 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 war against Hezbollah ended with the idea that there won't be another one. We're going to solve this diplomatically, and it wasn't solved diplomatically. Just the opposite. You know what I think is very important when it comes to Hezbollah. I think that today, Hezbollah, including the the senior leadership, understands that if they engage with war with Israel, if they fire and kill Israelis, Israel will be far more aggressive than it was in 2006. And at the end of the day, Hezbollah will be responsible for picking up the rubble that will be Lebanon. Right. Now, I and I think in terms it. of, of course, Israel wouldn't, isn't looking to destroy civilian infrastructure, etc. But that will be a byproduct of Hezbollah hiding and all of their military facilities being inside the civilian facilities. But at the end of the day, when Hezbollah calculates, it's about okay the day after. What happens? Right, and I and you're right. If, if Hezbollah does that, they are they are sacrificing Lebanon, which they hold hostage at this time. But and this brings us to our last subject, which was our first subject, which is the international media. Yes. Most of it will not report on it that way. The international community, no matter what, will say. Israel is to blame. So in our last few minutes, talk yeah. to us about what it was like trying to deal with the international media. There's more in, there are more reporters, I believe, in Israel than there are in China and India combined, more foreign Western reporters, despite the- I mean, I'm sure, I don't know how many are in China and India, but I know that in Israel, there is an absolutely abnormal, tremendous amount of international correspondence, very senior, and it's considered a senior position, yes. Jerusalem bureau chief and reporter correspondent in Israel, covering Israel and the Palestinians is uh, really a good place to be for a journalist when they're working their way up. A lot of stories coming out there. And uh, last time I checked, according to the uh, uh, the Foreign Press Association in Israel, uh, there's about 250 uh, listed accredited journalists in Israel covering a conflict which is, has been going on for a long, long time. Uh, but uh, with a lot of interest, a lot of international interest. 
in uh, war times, by the way, uh, and Jonathan knows this in the last book, he also wrote about it. Uh, the amount of international media that descends upon Israel as soon as there's fighting is three, four, and five-fold the amount of that exists. And we're talking about more than a 1,000 journalists, international journalists from all of the most important networks. Now, let me ask you, how many of them are actually qualified to cover the conflict? How many of them have the history? How many of them have the language, the context? How many uh, don't need to rely on fixers. Just curious. And by the way, when we say fixers, just let's be clear here. We're not. You don't need a fixer in Tel Aviv. You no. do need a fixer when you go to the West Bank, and particularly if you go to Gaza. Gaza. And if you go to and get a fixer in Gaza, by which I mean an interpreter, a scheduler, or a helper, he has ties to Hamas. He must have ties to Hamas. He cannot he's be gonna get independent. Access. Right, right. Yeah, not only if he needs access, if he wants to see the sun the following day. Right. Right? Because right. Hamas has implemented a, a, a very strict regime of controlling the narrative that comes out of international reporting from Gaza, whereby anybody who is affiliated with international media, if they report things that Hamas doesn't like, there's one warning, and then it's lights out. Uh, and Hamas is very strict about this uh, and successful, and they're getting away with it. And instead of uh, different news organizations uh, who allegedly care about press freedom and they are very quick to criticize Israel when Israel does anything not to their liking uh, relating to their ability to do their job, which I think is fine. Any professional should uh, be fierce about defending their profession and liberty. But I think it should be uh, equal. And the way that the international media is just controlled and handled by Hamas when it comes to Gaza and to, to a lesser extent uh, by the Palestinian Authority when it comes to events happening in Judea and Samaria, I think is appalling. And I wouldn't be at the position to, you know, to qualify how good or how, how well prepared they are. Uh, and I understand that when you fly in from another, from, you know, headquarters, you go to, you're a special reporter and you come to an area, you cover it without having perhaps all of the context. But what I find really regrettable is that bottom line, I think there is a lot of lazy reporting. I, I think there's a lot of automatic reporting where the perspective, no matter what happens, is that, well, if this happened, then it's probably Israel's responsibility no matter the details. And it's probably the Palestinians who are suffering. So let's frame the story that way. Sometimes that is the case. Sometimes those things happen. But I think that the my issue with and my experience with uh, international reporting in general, and it's a horrible generalization, I think that what gets wrong many times is context and the um, succession of events in terms of what happened first and what led to what. So many times in international media, you get that mixed up. And what gets reported is the Israeli response to an attack that was perpetrated against Israel. Instead of, this happened, then Israel responded, uh, and, and that is where we stand now. No, it starts with Israel fires this and this, and maybe they mention in the report that, oh yeah, rockets were fired at Israel, or and is a, a Palestinian butchered three Israeli civilians. So let me ask you this. You spent how many years uh, as the international spokesperson? Four years. So four years. You had to deal with journalists of varying levels of professionalism. Yeah. Um, the one thing that was probably constant was the Israeli response. Now here, when we look at the way that Israelis engage in information warfare, um, we see the Israelis... I mean, dominating in cyberspace, on the battlefield, right? I mean, really incredible preparation, incredible skill level. The one area, at least from the perspective of Americans, where Israel falls down repeatedly mm -hmm. is in their ability to shape that, that information warfare space. What do you think – and by the way, this is no comment on the work that you did mm – -hmm. uh, but overall, it is a criticism, I think, yeah. that is a fair one. To, yeah, to, totally fair. It's uh, a professional one. Right? And so what is – I mean, in your, in your opinion, what is lacking? Yeah, it's a uh... portion. <laughs> he just said, "If you're in Gaza, you know you get killed if you don't." Other, report. other than killing the no, people no, that you don't I like. No, no, I am. A, I am a, just to be clear. I am definitely a strong believer in free, democratic, unlimited press. 
that uh, does its job uh, holding uh, politics, uh, politicians accountable, governments accountable, and reporting on events on the ground as they see them fairly and unbiasedly. That's, the, I think, the job of journalists in conflict, especially in conflict, but also in civil society. And I think that's, uh, that's what it needs to do with Israeli-Palestinian conflict as well. What I think Israel should be doing more in order to better present its case on the global stage is to change the thought process and planning process and to first or in early stages of planning military operations and any type of uh, government activity, ask itself, how will this be interpreted in the world and how can we better using not only rhetoric, words, but also intelligence and proof, visuals, the old saying of show, don't tell, how can we show what it is that we want the world to understand? And I think that then in many cases, it would be more challenging, even for editors and journalists who are biased and don't want to favorably or unbiasedly report on things that are happening, it will make it more difficult to uh, uh, bring a negative picture and perhaps a more balanced picture will be uh, displayed. And I think that Israel has responsibility. I've seen positive things over the last year and a half uh, with uh, the National Council for uh, Public Diplomacy. I hope that will continue. But what Israel needs to do is to use the abundance of visual intelligence that it has and to use it also for the purposes of telling its case to the world. Very good. A, I think we'll leave it there just because we, we've gone on along, and, but it's all been fascinating. A lot of subjects we didn't get to that I hoped we'd get to, but we'll get to another time. And besides, as Forrest Gump might say, foreign policy is like a box of chocolate. You never know what you're going to get, right? So it's, right. <laughs> so, Jonathan Henriquez, thank you very much thank for you this very great much. conversation. Thank Look you, Jonathan. To thank again. you, Cliff. John Chanzer, as always, my colleague and my friend. And thanks to all of you who have been with us for this conversation here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.